Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Phil. Um, well, good afternoon, everyone, and, and a delight to have you here. And do thank you, uh, do thank you for coming along. Um, I guess before I start on 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 my very um, sort of carefully considered script that uh, that I will stick to assiduously, um, perhaps it's worth just starting by saying um, that I'm I'm aware that the passage we've just read and the subject we're just about to talk about um, is one that is um, a tinderbox issue. It's a bit like the equivalent of of taking a barbecue after you know this evening down to um, Regent's Park and and and, and lighting it. it it's a tinderbox and it's a subject that's incredibly sensitively kind of nationally in terms of how we think about sex and, and how we relate to it, but also individually. And there'll be people maybe listening in um, who are been Christians for a long time and have had a lot of time to think about this. Maybe those who have come to faith recently and, and they're still wrestling with some, you know, with this subject and what it means for them. Maybe those, some of you who wouldn't call yourself Christians, you know, you're completely on a, on a different track in terms of your understanding and your, your, your philosophy of sex. And, and, and that's great wherever you're at. Um, we're here to submit to the Bible. Um, I'm aware that, that some of the things that you might hear might might be challenging. And, um, you know, I'd encourage us to ask questions. If there is anything that comes up, please do jot it down on, on the sheets on the table or um, on your laptops if you're at home and, and do, do ask. That. I think there'll be a chance for questions um, at the end. But everything I say, I say um, acknowledging that there's a sense of subject and, and one we want to talk about and, and, and think about carefully. Well, I wonder whose uh, view of sex you um, think of as more attractive. Uh, the Bible or Western secularism, um, or to put it another way, if we're honest with ourselves, do we often think that unlike some of the other distinctives that we've considered during this series, so we've thought about enemies, we've thought about anxiety, we've thought about money, do we often think that unlike these other distinctive in, in distinctives, in fact, the Bible's teaching on sex might be good, but it's a bit impoverished compared to what is on offer for those not following Jesus. Sort of like taking our medicine. It's good for us. Um, but it would be better if we didn't have to. Um, or perhaps that doesn't resonate with you at all. You've compared the two and you're convinced that God's way for sex is best. But in an attempt to distance yourself from impurity, you consider sex something best left unspoken about. Sex mistreated is so bad that it's best not discussed at all. Well, regardless of whether either or neither of these strike a chord with you, we're going to spend this lunchtime considering both why sex handled um, the way God intended it is, is in fact much better much better for us and much better for the world. Uh, I've provided three headings on the sheets um, for us to follow through. Uh, radical, um, serious and comforting. Uh, just one word for each, nice and easy for a workday lunchtime. Uh, and we'll consider those in turn as we follow through the passage. So firstly, um, verses 27 and 28 present a radical attitude to sex. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In order to properly understand this short section of the Sermon on the Mount, we must start by observing that Jesus asserts the Old Testament on adultery 
Um, Jesus isn't quoting the seventh commandment here in order to shoot it down. He's not saying, you heard it was said, but now I say. Um, Jesus' teaching flows from the commandment. Um, it doesn't flow beside the commandment. Um, you might recall how a few verses ago uh, in, in verse 17, Jesus made it abundantly clear that God's law given to his Old Testament people, Israel, remains as relevant as it ever has done. Um, that's Matthew, Matthew 5, 17 to 19. And it's incredibly important as Christians in a world which contains plenty of ill-informed teaching that we have no evidence that the Jesus who died for us did so in order to negate God's law. I'll say that again. It's incredibly important as Christians uh, in a world that contains plenty of ill-informed teaching that we have no evidence that the Jesus who died for us did so in order to negate God's law. And perhaps you're tempted like me to place a, a fig leaf of cheap grace over the naked truth of God's holy law. You know, that the, the sort of idea that you hear some people saying the law was in the Old Testament, but we're saved by grace and therefore we can do whatever we want. You know, that sort of thing. Well, don't buy it because Jesus doesn't. And so when Satan attempts to derail us with the lie, let us come back to Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. So in verse 27, Jesus asserts the Old Testament teaching on adultery. That is to say that our Lord places profound importance on the faithfulness of a husband and a wife towards one another. And let's face it, depressingly, even this is becoming increasingly radical. In our offices, perhaps even amongst our friends or family, we are surrounded by a world that is inoculated to the concept of adultery. To even use the word adultery is to give credence to the idea that there is a solemn duty of a husband and a wife to remain faithful to one another for life. I was reading an article recently um, in the weekend papers with an actress and we're in the West End, so we won't name the actress in case I get it wrong. But it, more or less what she was saying is the idea of a, of a, of a, of a monogamous, monogamous relationship that lasts for life is, is ridiculous. Like we change as people. It, it can only be for a time. Um, so suffice it to say that ours is a country where marriage is most commonly viewed as something for a time, but not a lifetime. But not only does Jesus assert the Old Testament on teaching on adultery, he actually goes much deeper and he goes much wider and um, deeper because it goes from actions, that is um, what is on the outside, to thoughts, that is what is on the inside. And um, Jesus takes us to the very source of the act, the way in which a man or woman may follow them, may allow their minds to go to places to which their sinful nature desires, their body will follow. From the sexual act outside, to the lustful thought inside. It is important to note um, that whilst the implications of this verse are very, very extensive, they are certainly not less than an exhortation to those who are married. We know this um, because again, in, in verse 28, Jesus makes reference to adultery. You'll see that in verse 28. He's still applying it to adultery, adultery being the act of unfaithfulness that is only found in the context of marriage. So this, deep, this teaching is deeper um, in that it goes from inwards from action to thought but it's also wider it's wider because Jesus doesn't specifically apply this to a married man or woman but as you may have noticed in verse 28 he applies it to everyone he applies it to everyone and let's not leave this verse before we've considered how radical this is not only does Jesus assert the binding exclusivity of marriage but he also advances into the territory of those who are single free, as our world would tell us, to do as they please. And he applies it to the mind, the territory um, that we want as ours and ours alone, the place where we are free to secretly think about what we want. And contrary to this, Jesus lays claim to our thoughts and the attitude of our hearts. 
And before we move on to the second section on the sheets, I want to suggest a wider application in the context of our workplaces. You may have noticed that the passage starts with a bit of a side swipe at the religious authorities of the time. Uh, you have heard it said, um, takes aim at the Pharisees and the scribes, um, who are so good at quoting and misquoting the law to suit their own skin-deep, um, hypocritical kind of religiosity. Uh, and this isn't a one-off, by the way. So verse 21, you have heard it said. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 33, verse 38, verse 43. Now, the contemporary culture um, in London is one of increasing and almost religious virtuosity. And firms are dedicating ever-increasing airtime and focus on causes, whether that be ESG, the gender pay gap, exco-equality, diversity, equity, carbon neutrality. And don't hear me wrong, much of this is good, and it, and it is to be welcomed. But my sense is that we need to be careful because the air we breathe cares nothing for heart change and only for action change. No regulatory training session that I've ever been to or diversity update has ever claimed to know my thoughts. And I think we live in a world that cares a lot about signals, but maybe not a lot about the integrity of those signals. The challenge for us as Christians in areas like sexual purity is that ironically, our world will actually make us more religious. This cultural phenomenon we're living through will obsess us with looking good and doing the right thing externally, while at the same time, our hearts and our minds are off limit. Ours to indulge as we please and not accountable to a God that actually knows and sees and cares about all we think and feel. So in verse 27 and 28, we've considered Jesus's radical teaching on sex. And now in verses 30, 29 and 30, we see how seriously Jesus takes this subject. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And perhaps before we um, get going into the body of the text, perhaps it's worth applying two helpful sort of guiding principles to these verses. Um, firstly, it cannot be the case that Jesus is advocating for self-harm or self-mutilation. Um, to make the case for this, we would have to take these two verses um, and a couple of others in Matthew, and we would have to place them in direct opposition to the vast majority, not only of Jesus's teachings, but actually the teachings of the entire Bible on human sanctity and dignity. However, secondly, accepting that these graphic instructions are not literal, it must be the case that this language points to the great seriousness that Jesus places on the subject of sexual immorality. Why so serious, you might ask? Well, here are at least two reasons that I think the text offers us. Um, the first is that Jesus is identifying that we have a special ability to mistreat sex, that we can use this, we can misuse this great gift in a distinct and damaging way. And as I've been preparing this talk, I've become increasingly convinced that this makes complete sense. Sex is an incredible thing that God has given to married couples to enjoy in the secure and exclusive environment of their relationship. It must follow, therefore, that in its intense ability to give joy, it must be especially potent when misused. In other words, that which is uniquely good about sex properly treated makes it so dangerous when mistreated. So serious, um, and serious uh, secondly, because misused sex is sin, and sin angers God. There are three significant words that are repeated in today's passage. The first one you'll be unsurprised to hear is adultery. 
I want you to have a quick look down and see if you can spot, spot the other two, um, two other um, commonly repeated words um, in, apart from adultery. Anyone got one? Yeah. Sin. Sin. Yeah. Sin's one of them. Hell. hell. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Um, yeah. So sin uh, and hell. Um, this passage is about adultery and lust, but it is also about the consequences of sexual immorality, sin and hell. And those consequences are so terrifying that we must sit up and pay attention. One possible consequence on offer here is that we sin, that is that we abuse and neglect our relationship with our loving heavenly father by distancing um, ourselves from him through disobedience. And worse still, even more severely, this passage warns of the very real threat that he or she who willfully carries on in unchecked sexual immorality may reveal a heart that is ultimately unrepentant, that they may be heading towards eternal judgment and separation from God. Jesus frames the potency of sex misused and mistreated as being like a highway to hell, like a wide and well-trodden road of those walking away from their creator and towards, and towards a lifetime of separation from him. Now, as Christians, um, we know that we have been saved by grace and through, and by, and through faith, and not by anything we've done. But even though our salvation is secure, don't we want to take these warnings really seriously? Does Jesus here not paint a bleak picture of the means by which we will impoverish our relationship with our loving, loving Heavenly Father if we fail to address this area of life? Now, I don't know about you, um, but I do find this passage incredibly uncomfortable and, and very convicting. Um, like me, maybe you think the area of sexual purity um, does matter, um, but you regularly fail to join the dots in the way that Jesus does here. Uh, maybe like me, you're a um, you're a you're a lifelong minor you're in a lifelong minor diplomatic negotiation with your heart about this subject, rather than a full blown spiritual battle. Ring a bell? Well, if so, Jesus is telling us to wake up and smell the reality. These verses are warning us to prepare, not for the spiritual equivalent of village cricket, but rather an intense, ongoing, and painful wrestle. Every day, this is a spiritual battle in which virtually everything around us is on the other side. The daily paper, the TV advert, the Netflix series, the office chat, the romantic novel, the billboard, or our unbelieving friends. You and I are facing a wall of noise, and it is all shouting the very opposite to what Jesus teaches here. It is all denying Jesus' very words and telling us that our desires are our own. Uh, now, this battle will look um, different to everyone. But in common with us, in common with each other, we have two powerful weapons at our disposal. Firstly, God has given us a brain. We have the ability to reflect and identify the specific areas that are often an issue for us in this matter and do something about it. Um, I think of people I know, like, for example, a guy who on hot days likes to keep his head raised above eye level. Um, uh, he probably looks a bit weird, but he, he wants to guard his eye um, um, from, from wandering. Um, or the woman who refuses to be drawn into conversation with her friends, where the purpose of the conversation is to complain about their husbands or indulge in fantasies about other men. Um, these are anecdotal examples, um, but do talk to close friends and share wisdom. No battle can be fought alone. 
So firstly, this is a battle in which God has given us brains. But secondly, and vitally, God has given us the Holy Spirit. As Jesus, uh, as Christians, the great news is that we neither have to be passengers in our own lives, completely uh, passively failing to take any action against temptation, nor do we have to be self-help gurus, completely dependent on our own strength. This can and should be an enormous source of comfort in a battle like this. The Holy Spirit is literally within us, supernaturally assisting us in fighting battles that our weak bodies are often useless to fight on their own. In this spiritual battle, as with all such battles, we should neither be defeatist, believing sin is inevitable, um, nor we should, should we be naive, thinking that somehow purity and holiness will just wash over us like a spiritual will waterfall in which we stand still and inactive. And so to our final point, as we conclude with some implications. Earlier, I mentioned how Jesus seems to be taking a pop at the Pharisees and with his reputation, re repetition of you have heard it was said. Um, Jesus identifies the potential chasm between superficially religious deeds and meaningful heart change. We see it later in Matthew's gospel and in, in chapter 15 and verse 11, when Jesus says that what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but rather what comes out of their mouth. The disciples tell Jesus that this has offended the Pharisees and no doubt it had. But I want to end our time by saying the verses we have just thought through are not offensive or helpless to those of us trusting in Jesus for our redemption, but instead they are profoundly comforting. Comforting how? Well, a few thoughts to finish us off, and I'm sure you'll have you know, other, other thoughts on, on the ways in which this is the case. Firstly, today's passage is comforting because God cares about the destructive effects that lust and adultery inflicts on our world. God cares greatly about insecure relationships. He cares greatly about broken homes, about the devastating and ever-increasing self-worth and self-confident issues that lustful minds um, are making more and more prevalent in the Western world. Secondly, God cares about his people's most intimate being. We have a God that doesn't want to just have a casual skin deep relationship with us, but knows us better than we know ourselves. That Jesus took on flesh is one of the great evidences for God's desire for complete empathy. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we read, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in help to help in time of need. Not only does God know our innermost being, but despite all the ugliness on show, we can draw close to the throne of grace with confidence. Thirdly, comforting because marriage is salt and light, uh, the, the very theme of, of this whole series. I do hope this is an encouragement for those of you who are married or considering it. Your marriage can be salt and light in its faithfulness. By being good husbands or wives or friends or family to those who are married, we are helping to live out Jesus's plan for us as God's distinctive people. Fourthly, purity is salt and light. Perhaps we take it for granted, but when we do not take partake in crude office banter, when we have relationships at work devoid of any hint of suggestiveness, when we convey upon colleagues the dignity to all men and women equally as our Lord does, that is distinctive. Fifthly, and lastly, and most gloriously, we can be comforted by this teaching on adultery because the marital faithfulness on here, here um, the marital faithfulness here is a shadow. It's a hint. It's an arrow pointing to a greater and better marriage. A greater and better marriage than covenant than any other. And that's the marriage 
of King Jesus, the groom, to us, the church, his bride. A marriage which will never end and will only get better. A marriage so good that it offers complete satisfaction to those who continually continue to seek it. A marriage in which we are often unfaithful, but he is always faithful and forgiving. In the fourth chapter of John's gospel, Jesus meets a woman at a well. It's one of the most prominent occasions of Jesus interacting with someone who has lost sexual sin. And what does Jesus offer her? A rebuke, yes, but accompanied by the water of eternal life. That is to say, the completely open offer of forgiveness. And as believers, the plain and wonderful truth of the gospel is that repentant hearts trying to live out Christian lives are never turned away, but are offered full forgiveness. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let us pray as we finish. Father God, we're sorry for all of the ways in which we struggle and fail.